Hi everyone, thanks for joining our webcast. Today we're pleased to present What Should You Really Measure? I'm Melissa Tanitigan, executive producer of the Lean Startup Conference, happening December 8 to 12 in San Francisco. Visit leanstartup.co for more information. Our speakers today are Alistair Kroll, Danielle Morrill, and Eric Rees. Alistair is an entrepreneur and author of the best-selling book, Lean Analytics. Today, he works on research and strategy at CloudOps and blogs at Solve for Interesting. His latest project, Tilt the Windmill, looks at how entrepreneurs produce changes in large organizations. Danielle is CEO and co-founder at Mattermark, a deal intelligence company using big data to help venture capital, private equity, and sales and marketing professionals. She blogs at daniellemoral.com. Eric is author of The Lean Startup and co-host of The Lean Startup Conference. A few housekeeping notes. We'll take questions from the audience via the live chat. If you'd like to ask a question, please use the question button to flag it. The speakers will answer questions in the second half of the webcast. No need to ask your questions twice. This is a one-hour program, and the recording will be available a few days after the webcast. Take it away, Danielle. All right. Hi, everyone. Hey, Alistair. Hey, Eric. Hey, hey Danielle. How are you doing? Great. It's great to be here. So I think uh, today we are going to have a lively debate around, you know, metrics. One metric, many metrics, how they change over time. You guys uh, ready to throw down? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I think I will start with uh, Alistair, actually, because we were having a great uh, conversation before we got started this morning. Um, so Alistair, what do you want to argue for, one metric or many metrics? I feel like I covered both sides to the, this morning. Yeah, it's it's obviously a tough debate. I think I'm going to argue for many metrics this time since we did one metric before. <laughs> okay, great. Well, and I'll uh, I'll take the one metric argument. Uh, Eric, do you want to you want to pick one, or are you just going to um, kind of sit here and, and point um, one way or the other? No, I'm going to hear the arguments and I'll make a decision. Okay, you're oh. the decider. <laughs> you're like the Statler and Waldorf of this chat. Is <laughs> no problem. Okay, I, well, I'll start. I'm going to make my comments all the time. Tell me about the many metrics. So, uh, first of all, it's kind of tongue-in-cheek because we wrote this book that says one metric that matters in it, uh, <laughs> which is kind of a cop-out because we initially said, look, um, companies spend too much time focusing on lots of metrics. They have this, like, many metrics that might matter uh, mentality, MMT, MMM, I guess. Um, and the problem with that is that uh, it's kind of covering your butt. Like, well, we were looking at that thing, right? And one of the biggest problems that an early-stage company has is focus. And so we advocate that you should pick a metric to work on. But the reality is that if you're in a startup, in an early stage company that, that is in search of a business model, um, you don't know what metric matters because you don't know your, your model yet. You don't know your product. You don't know your market. You don't know the method of delivering it to that market. And so each time you experiment, you are hopefully, adjust, as you go through that cycle of building, measuring, and learning, you're hopefully changing the thing you hope to learn, and therefore your metric is constantly changing. Okay, so it's many metrics held very loosely, it sounds like. That's right. Is that it's, right? They, I mean, like I said, it's kind of a fence discussion because uh, you you really have to um, you have to focus the organization on a metric. It's very hard to do an experiment when you have like 50 variables, right? You want control. Um, we, we One of the things I do think is true from the book that I won't sort of edit retroactively is... Um, if it won't change your behavior, it's a bad metric. That's like my Occam's razor for should you be measuring this thing. And uh, you should grab a metric knowing how it will change your behavior. But the behavior it's going to change should line up with the biggest risk in your current assumptions about the business. Okay. So is there a common course that the changing metrics take? Like is there a pretty typical like first metric most startups obsess about? Absolutely. So, so let me preface this by saying... Um, uh, Paul Graham once said this, that, that it's not necessary that your startup is a technology company, but given the rate of growth required and the rate of experimentation needed, it's likely because you can run uh, experiments digitally and so on. And so um, when you, uh, so, so this will sound like we talk a lot about tech companies, but many of these lessons apply for other kinds of businesses. Um, early on, you obviously care about um, uh, the, have you found a solution that a reachable market has a known problem about like like if you found a th have you found we call it empathy in the book but have you found a thing people actually care about and that's very qualitative it's lots of interviews and so on uh, later on it becomes about um, 
is it sticky? Will people keep doing that thing over and over again? Only then should you care about, you know, will they tell their friends? Because if they tell their friends and their friends show up and hate it, that's kind of awful. And then once you've got virality as good as it can get, um, then you should care about, can I spend money to acquire customers that give me more money than I spent? Because I get a kind of force multiplier from virality. And then you care about, can I kind of automate things and scale the business in a way that's unrelated to the human costs? So premature scaling is deadly, right? And so you wouldn't want to focus on scaling metrics early on. So it's kind so, of a natural progression. So are there certain metrics that like go together really well? Like, I mean, one I'm thinking about a lot, I have a SaaS company, is LTV, so lifetime customer value, and then cost of customer acquisition. But do you feel like there's a certain metrics that play really nicely together um, that people could be kind of pairing up or putting in little groups? Yeah, absolutely. And, and in fact, one of the things that usually indicates it's a good metric is there's a ratio without us tension in it. It's like miles per hour, right? Mm -hmm. Speed and distance, there's a natural tension there. And so um, I think uh, customer acquisition cost, which is how much it costs to get versus customer lifetime value, how much I spend, um, is a very good example of that. Um, but naturally, you're going to find it works really well if you get that natural tension. Um, mm -hmm. We were talking earlier, you know, uh, Moz uses net ads as a metric, which is how many people have I added minus how many have I lost. Sort of how much is my leak, how fast is my leaky bucket filling up? Uh, so that's a really good, net ads is a natural metric that shows you burn and, and acquisition. So now I've got to argue the other side, the one metric that matters side. Is there ever a time where all that really matters is just like how many people can I get to sign up and making that go up? Is there ever a time when that's an okay thing to just uh, uh, prioritize above all else? So I think, is there, let's ask it a little differently. Is there ever a time when that's okay for more than a week or two? Yeah, like for me to make yeah. out the metric for like a year and tell the entire company like, come hell or high water, the only thing I care about is that we make this sign-up number go up. I think, so there's a very interesting example with Twitter. Uh, Twitter cared a lot about number of engaged users, right? And they had this leading indicator, that uh, this thing they knew that if they did this thing today, something would happen tomorrow. They knew that if they um, had a user who acquired 10 people who followed them back in the early days of their use, that user was going to become a long-term user. And so for a long time, Twitter was very cagey about its business model, right? They just, we're just going to grow, we're just going to grow, give us money, we're just going to grow. What do you think, Eric? Is there, like, Twitter's one, like, do you, have you seen other cases like this? Where, like, what are other examples where it might be okay? Well, so I think most companies are focused on what we call vanity metrics, right? So they, they have some up-and-to-the-right metric they think is really important, sign-ups, users, uh, in some cases revenue, you know, something, something really good. And, and it's not that, we call it a vanity metric, not because it's bad, I mean, having more users is good, having more money is good, but because uh, when you look at the outputs of uh, the model, you're basically looking at the exhaust from the engine. And so, like, if you're like, okay, which car is going faster? Well, the one that's cranking out a lot of exhaust probably is going faster than the one that's just puttering around. Mm -hmm. But as soon as you create a, an incentive to make those numbers go up, you said that's our goal, people are like, hey, I know, I have another way I can make a lot of exhaust come out of the engine, like... I can dump some uh, sawdust in there. You know, like I get all kinds of tricks and games and things that, that cause the number to go up. I don't actually drive the value that you need to create. So I'm a big believer that uh, for startups in any situation, it's really important to understand why you've chosen this particular metric um, to uh, to use. Like we take it for granted, I think that you know what gets measured gets managed, or what you know whatever that saying is, like, I, I think in, in modern business we have a focus on metrics as we kind of take it for granted, but I think the question we've got to ask ourselves is why are we measuring anything at all? And what is the point of the analytics that we look at? And if you, you know, if you know one thing about entrepreneurs, you know that whether they're corporate entrepreneurs or VC entrepreneurs or two guys in a garage, like, entrepreneurs always have the really bad habit of spending other people's money. It's, that's what, it's what we do. And it sounds really fun because you're like, hey, I get to do stuff and I don't have to pay for it. Like, that's a good deal. But the, like, the flip side of spending other people's money is those people are always going to want to know what did I get for my money? Mm -hmm. What was the return on the investment? What did I get? And if we're really trying to build hyper-growth businesses, right, the hockey stick-shaped businesses, then by definition, we're going to have that long, flat part of the hockey stick where the vanity metrics, the gross numbers, are really low. And so by definition, our ROI on the money we've spent so far is negative. And if you talk to general managers in, who have regular jobs and regular business, everyone knows that you never, ever, ever invest for a negative ROI. That's like the worst thing you can possibly do. And yet, as entrepreneurs, we find ourselves in that situation all the time. And we fall back on, hold on, but hold on. I know it's negative ROI, but we're learning so much. Right? Like, we're learning so much about our customers, and we're having these great insights. And, like, you can't, you can't pull that on finance people. 
It's like, right, like, oh, oh, I'm going to return your learning to my limited partners for a great return. I'm going to put learning in the annual report. Like, give me an effing break. Learning's not of any interest to people who, who want to know what did I get for my money. Learning's not a very good deal. So I think of the metrics, and I call this, uh, in Lean Startup, we call it innovation accounting. It's basically a system for translating between the domain of learning and validation that entrepreneurs naturally focus on into the domain of finance so that we can prove deductively and quantitatively that the learning we're getting is actually valuable. So if you understand your business well enough to create this model, then uh, I think you can get yourself out of this problem, which is that how do you prove to your investors, but really, how do you prove to yourself that the work that you're doing every day matters, that you actually are learning things that are valid, the number going up means something. And that, I think, is the root of why a lot of these one metric that matter conversations kind of fall over, because it's so mm -hmm. easy to pick a metric arbitrarily, and you're like, well, yeah. sign-ups, uh, or you know, engagement or revenue, you know, vanity metric, but even if you use a really good metric, like you know, LTV versus uh, customer acquisition cost, if that's the right model for your business, then that's a good one metric to focus on. But, but I really, like, Five seconds with your VC or five seconds with the CFO of your company, like they're going to ask you, well, how do I know that that metric is the right one? And if you don't understand your business well enough to be able to answer that question, you're still screwed. So I, I want to go back to the oh, car, sorry, go ahead, Alistair. Sorry, the, the car analogy I like, Eric, because like if you're doing it right, you built a Tesla. It's got zero exhaust and it out accelerates everything, right? And so because we're not in the business of building another car, we're in the business of building a new kind of car the metrics are more likely to be, hey, there's no exhaust here. Damn, that went fast. Yeah. Well, I mean, Twitter and, and a lot of these companies are a great example where the vanity metrics were so small at the beginning, they were actually giving investors their money back. Right. Like, think about the people who made the billion-dollar mistake. Twitter came to them when they had, like, 300 highly engaged users and said, hey, we're, we're still so guilty about this. We'd like to give you your money back. And several of Silicon Valley's best investors said, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. You know, you really say, like, that's a really honorable thing to do now. Later, there was controversy about whether this was a scammer and whatever. But like, in the domain of the exhaust, there was nothing to see, and in the domain of the of the leading indicators, uh, there was a tremendous amount to see. So I think your point this, about Twitter is that it is interesting in the light of they knew, like they, they knew that they they had a very good way of understanding where their revenue would come from. So they knew that each time someone refreshed their feed, they'd have a chance to push an ad, and they knew kind of what those ads would cost. And mm -hmm. so they had a way of saying. I have a strong assumption, fairly well-backed assumption, that I can quantify the revenue in the future from the behavior now. So they had, like, how many people I have times how many times them, they pull down their feed equals number of impressions. Number of impressions times going rate for impressions equals revenue. And so they were able to grow for a, for a while once they did have some traction and without trying to monetize and focus just on growth and growth and growth of users because they had a very good... Uh, assumption that they've been able to sort of de-risk about how the what looked like a vanity metric at the time correlated with a hard business metric like revenue down the road. So going back to what you said though earlier, Alistair, like what about these companies where you, you mentioned solvency is, is you know kind of the ultimate the ultimate measure? But what about like if we're looking at these companies like Amazon, for example, that you know the press loves to do the single metric thing, right? The press loves to say, well, they're not profitable. And that's kind of the only thing that gets highlighted. So for those of us looking at the these big companies as heroes, how are we supposed to understand that kind of narrative in the in this context? Like with even with Twitter, right? People are saying, well, Twitter's not profitable, the jury's still out, but you're making a great case that they can predict, you know, how, where things are going. Right. And, and and Wall Street, I mean, we have a lot of broken indicators in society. Mm -hmm. Um Without getting too philosophical, I think GDP is a horrible indicator because it doesn't measure health. I mean, the I best agree. thing you can do for GDP is the Exxon Valdez, right? You have to buy new oil, fly in a bunch of lawyers, and clean up the coast. Nobody would argue that was good for society, but it was awesome for U.S. GDP that year. And so um, I think in the case of some of these companies like Amazon, we're saying earnings per share, but earnings doesn't include absolute dominance of you know logistics and the creation of Amazon Web Services and so on. So we quantify earnings in, in different ways, and I think that's where Eric's idea of innovation accounting comes in. Amazon may not have a lot of um, money per share, but it has a tremendous amount of innovation per share. And I think you have to look at a bigger picture of earnings per share and a broader definition of earnings to understand what that means. So one of the questions in the chat room is around um, B2B metrics and things that matter specifically for the enterprise. Obviously, like the popular um, culture and media loves to talk about consumer companies, but 
what are some things that people who are building enterprise software or enterprise companies should be thinking about that like maybe they're not hearing enough when it comes to metrics? Yeah, we, we spend a lot of time trying to come up with good proxies for, um, for the metrics that you see. So, for example, um, you can't really look at the virality of a B2B product, but you can measure things like willingness to act as a reference, uh, net promoter score, number of case studies you've been able to create. Um, you can't, it's not as easy to look at stickiness because people are paid to use your product, but can you, you can measure things like, uh, I've seen one SaaS company that measured the number of times someone pressed the back button using an app, right? Like for, for a media site, time on page and engagement is great. For a SaaS site, you want to get the hell out of there. The sooner you can accomplish your goal properly and leave, the better. But the number of people who click to the support site or stalled when entering a form or uh, went back when they went down a, a link and then went to the previous page because it was because the UI was hard to follow. Those are all indicators of poor stickiness, if you will. Mm -hmm. And so you have to find things that again, the, in the, if your business goal is to deliver a SaaS tool that makes users productive, um, then what are the leading indicators of bad productivity and measure those? Uh, Eric, you've been talking to a lot of big companies. What do you think they see? Well, I've I've had the the fortune or misfortune, depending on your point of view, since the book came out to be spending my time not just with digital companies, but with companies all over the industrial landscape. So I've been, I mean, you name it, I've been working on it. Healthcare, um, you know, deep sea oil drilling, cars, uh, like fracking, like anything in the en energy space, I'd be happy to talk to you about. It's like, it's crazy. Renewable energy, dirty energy, financial services. I feel like I've been on a, a, a world tour of capitalism and have done these kind of lean startup approaches in all of those places. Uh, oh, and not to mention governments, which that's a whole nother. That's like a whole webinar unto itself. And what's, what's great about it is it's totally, it, it, uh, by force, has cured me of the habit of using digital rules of thumb to tell people what to do. Like there's all these heuristics. If you read, you know, read TechCrunch and wherever, like there's all these people who are like, ah, the, business, the metric that mattered for me was this. And if you're in SaaS, you do this. If you're in B2B, you do that. But when you start to really get out of the digital domain or in businesses that are only newly being transformed by technology, like appliances, and you look what's happened to consumer electronics, of late, you really have to be able to reason from first principles about what are we trying to create here, and then how could, what are the leading indicators that we could use to measure that impact. So, you know, innovation accounting, we have a framework, we talk about the value hypothesis and the growth hypothesis. So first of all, how do we know that we are creating value for customers? Like, what is the evidence that we delight the customer? That we, that's, that's evidence that's not just con like conclusive, like, oh, it feels good, but how do you prove to someone that this is in fact valuable? So it depends a lot on what is the goal of the uh, of the product in, in question, right? Are we trying to drive productivity growth? And what is the evidence that productivity growth has actually happened? If we're trying to make people's lives better, faster, more efficient, whatever it is. But the growth hypothesis is where I think people mess up the most. And I really believe that if you don't make your explicit goal sustainable growth, you can wind up creating a Ponzi scheme or a, you know, a virus. Like there's all kinds of like cancer grows really fast, but that's not, that's not the kind of growth we aim for in most business. So sustainable growth is characterized by one simple rule. The rule is that new customers come from the actions of past customers. Sure. And in all the companies that I've worked with, I only really know three variations of this. We call them the three engines of growth, going back to the auto metaphor. Like you need to find something where each cohort of customers, you know, powers the next cohort of customers. And that can happen in one of three ways. The viral engine of growth is where um, customers recruit other customers as a necessary side effect of using the product. Think about a PayPal or a Facebook, right? You get that email. It's like, you know, so-and-so has tagged you in a photo. And it's like, it's an involuntary reaction to click on it to find out what's going on. But that that same phenomenon happens in industrial and, and, and you know, healthcare businesses all the time. It doesn't have to be a consumer thing. Um, I was working with a with a team that was was working on. I, I'm trying to think how much detail I can share, but uh, a life-saving piece of medical equipment, where once you have it in your hospital, a class of patients who previously were pretty much guaranteed to die all of a sudden don't die, and so that's that's pretty cool. And you know, once you put it in one hospital, it's you know, there's since there's so much rotation between hospitals of doctors, there's so many conferences, there's so many opportunities to share that information, like. Once you know that this is possible, you have to have it in your hospital. Like there's not a doctor in the world right. that would be like, oh, these patients could be saved, but oh, it's kind of expensive. Like no thanks. Like so the they took it out, right? They got to they got to install it. Yeah, and, and it's a it's a business imperative because your customers hear about. Wait a minute, you know, so and so's baby, you know, lived. 
are you going to be able to do that for my baby? It's like, so the diffusion of a product like that is going to follow this same category where each customer involuntarily helps you recruit other customers, which is not word of mouth growth. I think that's what some right. people really misunderstand. Word of mouth is something different. Word of mouth is voluntary. You know, we talk about viral growth by analogy to a virus. It's an involuntary transmission. That's what makes yeah, it. Yeah, so we scary. make the distinction between intrinsic and extrinsic. And intrinsic growth is kind of it happens by itself. You know, there's nothing you can do about it. This just this this vector kind of exists. Well, I, I want to be careful with that because uh, if you look at the second engine of growth, which is called a sticky engine of growth, it can look like viral growth from the outside, and it feels like it's intrinsic. But I, I, I don't know that I necessarily would, would buy into that. So, so but anyway, but for sticky engine of growth, see what you think. Uh, here, you know, we talk about new customers coming to the actions of past customers. In the sticky engine of growth, the new customers are the past customers coming back. So we have a product that has extremely high retention because either it's addictive, we have extremely strong network effects or lock-in, like all kinds of BDB, SaaS software all fall into this category, but so do uh, auction platforms, right? Like think about eBay and every other network effects business where you have to be there. Once the network effects kick in, if you want to transact that kind of business, that's the place you have to be. But like for that matter, a lot of uh, video games and stuff have this character. Like think about World of Warcraft. Once you start playing, like I dare you to try and stop. It's extremely difficult. So in those businesses, that's where we see if you have 100% retention, and whatever word of mouth business, whatever word of mouth you naturally get, you will compound. So here, this is the compounding interest type business where, uh, you know, if you have 5% a month natural word of mouth growth rate and 100% retention, then it's like having a bank account that pays you 5% interest compounded monthly. Like, you're going to be super rich. But what's so crazy about this one is it's extremely sensitive to churn rate. So imagine, like I talked about 100% retention, 5% word of mouth, you're like super psyched. But what if you had 95% retention, which is pretty damn good. I mean, most businesses right. would kill for 95% retention. Well, 95% retention, 5% word of mouth growth, you will have 0% growth. You'll just be completely flat. And God forbid you have 90% retention, now you're having compounding interest uh, as a debt and you're doing it in reverse and you're in trouble. So I'm just trying to think about how do I categorize that one in terms of extrinsic versus intrinsic. Like, you're not doing anything to cause people to want to do word of mouth. It's just natural. I think about like a, you know how I remember when I got TiVo, I just could not stop installing it in people's houses. But like they could stay. It was not involuntary transmission. They could in fact say no. And in fact, I know at least one person who sent it did, back. Did you know these people beforehand, or was this just creepy? <laughs> well, that, it started to get pretty creepy. I didn't, you know, I, any pretext to set someone with a TiVo, I was pretty, I was pretty psyched to be there. So guys, I want to bring it back to something um, yeah. that kind of came up earlier around talking to the team and the idea that sometimes it's nice that it's convenient to have one metric just to get everybody psyched. So how do you deal with the fact that not everybody has the same understanding or visibility to a lot of these metrics and like still keep everyone in the company aligned? Maybe Eric, yeah, you, you want to take mentioned this earlier, uh, uh, You mentioned this earlier that, that there's like this morale issue around metrics, right? Um, <clears throat> sometimes vanity makes us feel pretty. And uh, <laughs> if you have a large number of employees and you come in every day and go, oh, man, burn, our runway is 2.3 months, everyone spends their time looking for jobs, right? So there is a certain amount of, I think, with the founding team, you got to be ruthlessly honest and you got to recognize you're here to learn. But as you're doubling down on, hey, we think we might have something here where you're just 10 degrees off and, and you're ramping up the team, there are, I think there's, there are some metrics you share with the whole organization, but they become increasingly longer view unless they're related to the specific task that employee has. So like, I'm going to tell you we got 10 months runway in the bank. By the way, your job is to make sure the pink button works better than the red button. Go. And by the way, here's the data on the pink and red button. So there becomes this weird sort of, um, I wouldn't say dishonesty, but uh, there's a filtering of the information that gets shared as the organization grows for sure. I'm more of a transparency guy, so I actually prefer to give people the full information, uh, even though that has definite consequences and not to be undertaken lightly. Um, you know, but I think that in the long run, the morale benefits you get from uh, cloaking devices and shields and kind of like the reality distortion field that you create. I mean, in the short term, it's great for keeping everybody focused, but you then, over time, as as like as reality deviates from the reality distortion the amount of energy required to maintain the field increases over time. And I think it actually has an exponential cost to keep it going. Uh, and you so, a new law? It's, that, <laughs> that should yeah, be a yeah. law. Yeah, it's that, right? like if you, if you invent the flux capacitor, then you can, then you can do this right. thing. Um, you know, no, but, that's but a, but that's a really good... I'd love to get painful. a poll of that. Like how many people don't... Because I know I've been in both situations, and, and in some cases, I think I kind of agree with you that the people that, that liked that are the ones I wanted to keep working with which is weird, right? Because they were 
they were more understanding that we were not building a product. We were building a product to figure out what product to build. And they kind of right. got that. And I think, yeah, and, and I think, yeah. you know, fundamentally, like, a core value for me anyway is respect for the truth. Like, like the way we cut through all of our pretensions and ego and vanity is to say, look, if you really believe that this mission is important, in fact, it's so important that we're willing to devote five to ten years of our life to it, which is a pretty significant investment, no matter right. how rich you are. Like, your time is the most scarce thing that you have. If this is that important, then we can't afford to be deluded. we got to be ruthlessly honest about what's actually happening in reality and is the product actually working. And I think it's a real test of founders. Do you understand your own metrics well enough to be able to explain them to even the most junior person in your company and to defend them against their inevitable criticisms? That's right. again why I always go back to, to metrics derived from first principles. Um, you got to deal with that cranky engineer who you just hired straight out of college who thinks he's God's gift, who's actually really freaking smart. That's why you hired him. And he wants to know, well, why should I care about lifetime value? Why don't I care about this other thing that I read about on TechCrunch this morning? And if you don't know, if your answer is like just just because I said so or just because our investors think it's important or some other kind of cop-out answer, I think you, you are setting yourself up for morale problems over time as uh, your team doesn't fundamentally really understand what are we trying to explore. Now, that's always in tension with what Alistair said before, which is that in the early stages of any new venture, you don't know enough to necessarily know what's right. But I think it's important to have a hypothesis that is strongly believed but loosely held. So we call them leap of faith assumptions for that for a reason. We assume that this is true. We think we got it right, and we will have an honest to God conversation who says, you know what? Every month we evaluate, like, hey, is it time to pivot to a new model, or is this the one we want to continue with? And we got to be, we got to get used to having that conversation, so that having the conversation is not a morale killer. It's just routine. It's like, well, yes, this is of course what we do. We always say, you know, should we pivot or not? And pivoting is not itself a sign that something's gone horrifically wrong. In fact, it's a, it's a sign to celebrate that we learned something we didn't know before. So there, that brings me back to one of the questions in here about um, that the, one of the users had asked earlier, and Danielle, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. If metrics change over time, does that make you seem to skeptics as somehow vulnerable? Like, hey, you know, it's a lazy pivot. Ah, I didn't feel like doing that anymore. Have you heard about my new pivot? Uh, you know, I, I remember Mark Andreessen's comment at last year's conference where he said, like, we love that you failed ten times. It'd be great if you succeeded every now and then or something like that, right? No, I mean, so, I think it's a similar problem that you have with your employees, so you kind of have to train them to work with you to be uh, flexible. So I, for example, do a lot of work on investor relations. We happen to have a unique way we've raised money for our company, but you can send metrics to investors or the public. You know, we blog about some of ours the same, in the same way, and over time, people start to say, oh, that's just what they do. They Like, like if you look at Buffer, this is a company that shares a lot of their metrics. They're building a social media scheduling and management tool. Um, they have a completely open company where they're publishing everything from you know, how much money they're making to their different metrics to their um, salaries and how they think about you know, employees and hiring. And the thing is, like at first, that's really weird. But then if you keep seeing it over time, it's kind of like how public companies have to file public filings with their metrics every quarter. At some point, the earnings call is just like, oh, well, like another earnings call, like nothing we weren't expecting. So I think it's more just expectations. And at first, you know, if you're doing something different, and I think a lot of this lean analytics conversation is still very new, people are not comfortable because they still think it's more of an art than a science. So, I mean, you have to educate them. I think, um, you know, when we changed our business entirely to something new, it felt like um, we told all this great story with all these vanity metrics, and then we'd completely change directions. So it's funny to think, you know, even with all the metrics, you could still be completely wrong. Um, and I think just the fact that everyone knew what we'd been thinking the entire time meant that when we all came to this collective realization that it wasn't working, everyone had already followed that whole thinking path. And you can't really take people back in time to do that. So if you don't bring them along with you the whole way, like it's very hard to get them up to speed. So. Um, I think it probably does have some negative impact for those of us who are more transparent early on, but then later when they trust you, you have allies forever. So, so that's a long-winded way of saying I think it's long-term good and short-term hard. I, I want really to totally like underline, underline what Danielle just said. I mean, it's just so, first of all, kudos for having done it. I, I was one of the people that got to go along on that ride, and, and it was awesome to watch Danielle. It's it great. But that experience that she had is so right on. Like I get asked all the time, is there some magic formula or, or some advice you can give us about how do I know that it's time to pivot? And the truth is, or like, or what should I pivot to is another one. And I think the truth is that there's no formula for that, and that's simply a matter of judgment. However, that's not what's hard about pivots. 
if everyone in the room has the same set of facts, it's usually pretty easy to, to realize, you know what, this is not working. And in fact, it, once you can just put, put a stake through the old thing, it's actually usually pretty obvious what the new thing should be too. But, but as long as there's at least one holdout in the room who's clinging to the past and does not believe that things are not working, you, that person can consume the whole team's energy forever because no one wants to be like, as long as there's one believer, no one wants to be like, oh, I've lost faith. So no one's going to be willing to lose faith. So to me, the power of all this analytics is not that it will guarantee that you're a success. It may not even necessarily increase your odds of success over what you would have done if you just gone Geronimo because, of course, we don't know how good your idea is. Your idea is extremely good. You know, Maybe you don't need all this analytics, and maybe that would all be fine. But the, the thing that is so powerful about it is if we use the right kind of analytics, if they are, in fact, you know, like we say, you know, the three A's, actionable, accessible, and auditable, if you actually follow this whole program, you will have a room full of people who have the same set of facts indisputable scientifically valid facts about what's working and what's not and that gives you a chance just a chance in hell of actually making a decent decision actually being willing to pull the trigger on what I think is one of the hardest things to do in business which is to say remember that thing six months ago I told you I was absolutely sure it was going to change the world is the best thing ever just kidding uh, I was wrong and not only is it not going to change the world it's actually a terrible terrible idea and I really wish I could have last six months of my life back like think about how hard that is if you've never if anyone listening in who's never been through that like I mean, I would rather bang my head against the wall over and over again than have to do that again. It's so painful, and yeah, yet it's have, absolutely necessary if you want to be successful. I think we we literally in one of one of my companies we literally had to, like my co-founder and I had to threaten to quit and say we're just not going to the office today. And <laughs> wow. uh, we and, and I, we had this crazy breakfast meeting. I may not have told this story before. We had this crazy breakfast meeting, and we literally said we're not going to the office today unless we switch from what was at the time a managed service to a company that made an appliance. Um, using the technology we developed, and you know the the person across the table from us was like, "You can't do that. That's blackmail." And we're like, "No, it's just not going to office today." And he said, "Well, maybe we can start in a couple of months." And I said, "Actually, we've been building this thing for a month." And he said, "He said you can't do that." I'm like, "Well, there's two outcomes: I go to the office for a month ahead, or I don't go to the office and we leave." So I think it was pretty smart to start that, right? And it was just this this absolute come to Jesus moment. And as soon as we made that decision, everyone in the company the morale doubled because everyone was like, "Wow." we actually are aware. Like, as leaders, we didn't look like we knew what was going on because the evidence was all around people. So it was it was a very visceral feeling, but it was absolutely, and that was hardcore B2B, lots of investment, you know, four years in. Uh, it was a very interesting feeling to, to get that sense of catharsis that we've, we've finally all left the previous Messiah and are now praying to the new one. Wow. That sounds like a wild ride. So while we're at the halfway mark in the broadcast, I just want to mention we welcome your questions in the chat room, and we're moderating. We'd love to answer them. So we're going to keep the conversation going, but if you've got questions, um, throw them in there, uh, and let's try to keep them relevant to, uh, to Startup Metrics, and uh, it'll be awesome. So um, I'll just keep going with uh, this line of talking about first principles, Eric. You've mentioned that a couple of times. Um, it would be great for you to just talk a little bit more about like if, if if people are hearing that for the first time, like what is that, and how do you start to think about um, just understanding your business from that perspective? Yeah. So uh, you know, people some people hear this and they're like, "Oh, this is overly philosophical, and I'm not interested, and I just want to get busy executing." And and uh, that's fine with me. You know, build, measure, learn, the whole lean startup cycle. It's a cycle. It's a circle. You can start any place, and I believe you will eventually come back around to where we are. So for people who who are more action oriented, you know, go run some experiments, have fun, and let me just give you a sneak preview of the problem you're going to have. Here's the problem. You spent somebody else's money, you ran an experiment, you're very excited about it, and you got three customers to say, I love this product and to give you $25 each. And from your point of view, that is an outstanding success because that's a lot better than having zero customers give you a no money at all, right? So you actually did an MVP, it was a success, you're very excited. And you want to share it with the person who gave you the money necessary to do that experiment. They say, wait a minute, you made $75 total? <laughs> what, did you find a quarter on the street and you think you improved the company's balance sheet? Like. Come on, kid. The whole point of this was to, and you know, you know, you, I don't have to replay this line of argument. We've all been on the receiving end of this particular lecture. So, all right, now your goal is to convince this person that what you learn is in fact valuable. How are you going to do it? Well, luckily, usually when you raise money, there is a document that you had to create that I believe has the key to answering all of these questions, and it is the business plan. I feel like I'm like the last pro business plan person left in the startup world, but I'm super pro business plan, and I do not like to do any startup anything with no business plan. But not the fiction writing part of the business plan, the part you compose in Word, that you can throw away. I don't think that has any value whatsoever, and it's totally useless. But the Excel document in Appendix B, where you showed 
if customers behave in the following ways, then deductively speaking, this is the logic of how that leads into a, a huge business. That is very valuable. The problem is that people misuse that tool uh, as a tool of accountability. So what happens is, you know, you make this spreadsheet. I remember making these spreadsheets. I didn't know why I was being asked to make this spreadsheet. I was like, investors, I guess, want to see that you can endure a lot of pain. So if you show them a really complicated spreadsheet, they know that you must have endured a lot of pain to produce it. And that's like, that's literally my only, I was like, why do they want this totally documented? I made up all this stuff. What I didn't understand is the spreadsheet makes forecasts. It says over the next five years, here's exactly how much revenue we're going to have by year. And investors are like, thank you very much for giving me the accountability framework for deciding if your company is doing a good job. So one year later, they're like, hey, you had to give me a spreadsheet that said you would have exactly this three significant digits amount of money. How come you don't? And then, you know, we have a problem. So what I want to do is get people to focus their energy away from the outputs, which are fiction, but towards the inputs, which are a deductive, logical argument that says if customers behave a certain way, then this outcome is going to happen. It's a necessary consequence of them acting this way. So it's like, look, if 10% if of customers sign up for the free trial and the average revenue per customer is $100 and it costs us you know, $1 to get each customer to sign up for the free trial and the retention rate is thus and the you know, viral coefficient is like whatever the math is that is essential to your business. If those things are true, then let me run the model, see the compounding interest, see how whoop, you get this hockey stick curve. So we're looking at the true leading indicators of later growth. Um, we call that a bottoms-up rather than a tops-down model. It's not based on market share and Gartner analysis. Um, the guys at Andreessen Horowitz at the conference last year talked about it as a nose counting, like going from the behaviors of individual customers aggregated up into a model that shows macro behavior. Well, the cool thing about this is if you can fill in those inputs with real experimental data, you can go to a financial person and say, look, right now with the inputs as currently given, the net present value of our business is $25. It was supposed to be $100 million, but it's only $25. So it's not very good. However, now we have a baseline. And although it's, we're only one month in, we haven't spent very much money, and we know we started, so like it's pretty bad. But next month, I'm going to show you that the net present value of this business is actually greater. And the next month, you come back and look, our business is worth $3,000. Now, if you'd started at $3,000, it wouldn't have seemed very valuable. But $25 to $3,000 seems pretty good. You come back again, you're like, hey, now you know we've got our, our sign-up on a cohort basis. Uh, that's starting to look even better. And so the, you start to recalculate that net present value over time. This is the kind of the core of innovation accounting is to be able to model the business in a way that financial people can see, look, what we're learning is driving net present value up. Now, I so that's, that's what it means to, to understand your business from first principles, to say what are the specific behaviors that are the bedrock upon which everything else uh, is derived. And every metric we focus on is connected to that bedrock and therefore is known as of known value. And anything that is not part of the logic of that bedrock is safe, can we can safely ignore. Now, any of you who are listening and who are like, oh, that sounds great, I want to go do that, do not do what I just said. I just described to you what it looks like in the most advanced state that a lot of the startups I work with take several years to build up the muscle and the skill required to do what I just described. Like when you start talking about net present value, you better know what you're talking about cold or financial people are going to eat you for breakfast. <laughs> so uh, it's really important uh, you know, to kind of to work, the, work, the, work to that level of understanding, work to that mastery in steps, starting with, um, you know, rather than trying to build a comprehensive set of input metrics, like pick two, three, four, five metrics, put them in a dashboard, look at them on a cohort basis, show them going up over time. Like don't feel like you have to necessarily prove that they're related to your business plan. Don't necessarily feel like you have to recalculate net present value. And then once you've gotten, we kind of mastered that dashboard approach, which sounds so easy when we're talking about it. Like I just described it in two sentences, but like in practice to actually get a dashboard that really works, that your whole team can agree on, that your investors buy, like that is the work of months just by itself. And then later, as you become more confident in your understanding of your own model, then you can connect it up to the business plan and then you can eventually do this net present value calculation. So, so Eric, can I want to yeah. jump in just before you go any further. Sure. So we've got some questions that have come up throughout the chat in uh, around NGOs, nonprofits, and yeah. premium. So what about these businesses that have like indirect revenue models or delayed revenue models? Like how do they think about this when it's not just dollars going up over time in the beginning? Yeah, you mean intentional not-for-profits yes. <laughs> versus the unintentional not-for-profits the where they're delaying revenue for a while. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. You know, people think that that, that, that situation would be super different than a for-profit company, but it's actually, I swear to God, I work with a lot of these companies now, it's not that different. It's almost exactly the same. 
because ultimately revenue is a consequence of impact. So for even for for-profit companies, it's a lot like think about Twitter or Facebook or your, pick your favorite for-profit company, Amazon, Microsoft, whatever. Um, revenue was a trailing indicator of the impact that they were able to create and they had to run for a long time just mm -hmm. on the confidence that the impact would matter, revenue and profit uh, being a trailing indicator. NGOs work the same way, it's just that impact is our primary goal. So we don't need to worry about whether it translates to revenue or not, we just have to focus on can we prove that the impact is valuable to the customers who put up the money namely our foundations and other funders. And that's pretty freaky. Nonprofit people are not used to thinking of foundations as customers. And, and foundations get very insulted if you tell them that you're going to think about them as a customer. But actually, that's what they are. Like a, a nonprofit is a multi-segment business just like YouTube where you have one segment that provides the time and attention and impact and another segment that provides the money for that. You know, in YouTube's case, you got video creators, video watchers, and advertisers. And, you know, in a nonprofit situation, you might have a literacy program where you have teachers, students, and the funders who say, well, if you can show me impact, I'll give you money. It's almost exactly how do you, the same. How do you go about collecting metrics in those environments? I mean, they're becoming increasingly digital, but there are lots of thorns and thickets around, you know, transparency and how do I know I actually built the well and all that kind of stuff. What have you seen that changes the culture of nonprofits to be better at collecting data transparently? It honestly starts with the funders and the foundations. I get asked like once a quarter to go speak to a nonprofit foundation and they always ask me how do we do this lean startup thing and I always tell them the same thing. I said I'm going to tell you how to do it and then you're not going to do it. What, I'm going to suggest something that's so simple you could do it in a second but you're not going to do it. And they're like no, no, we're so, I swear we're going to do it. Tell me to do it. Tell us what it is. I'm like okay, listen, I'm going to tell you but I guarantee I'm never going to hear from you again. We're not going to do it. And I, so far I've been right 100% of the time. Um, because if you want to change the culture of this, all you have to do is pay for outcomes. Right. So instead of being like, I'm going to write you a grant and you know you pretend you're going to have this outcome and then I give you $100,000 and then we're going to do a, a review afterwards to see if you did the outcomes that you said you were going to do and like then we're going to have this changing the goalpost thing where you're going to be like, well, yes, we had a huge amount of success but it wasn't the success we promised and the grant, it was other success and so the, you know, the person going in to measure the impact comes back to the funder and they're like, okay, well, we were trying to get to the 100-yard line but like we hit a home run. It's like, ah, uh, wait, hold on. I don't know. That's just like you mix metaphors. I mean, what's going on? It's getting confusing. And it's basically like when you're in that kind of situation, the confusion devolves into politics. Everything turns into a popularity contest, and whoever's popular, whoever talks a good game, whoever's got the charisma and the connections gets the funding. A much better way would be to say, listen, I want to fund literacy programs that take adults aged 25 to 40 from illiterate to completely literate in a year. Anyone who has a program that will do that, I will pay you $250 per student. So you come back to me and show me how many students you were able to turn literate, like I will pay you exactly. So like it gives nonprofits an incredible amount of transparency of exactly how much funding they're going to have. It allows them to scale incrementally so you can say, okay, uh, rather than ask for a $10,000 grant, all I have to do is figure out, okay, how do I get, what do I just, I can't, can, I, can anyone do the math for me? Is that 40 students to raise $10,000? Like it takes it out of politics and be like, you know, just go run a class for 40 students and just do it and we guarantee you you'll have the funding and then of course with that funding hopefully you can scale up from 40 students to 400. And if you can't, if it's not scalable, then that really begs the question of whether this is worth investing in at all because modest impact is not usually what foundations want to fund. Anyway. So Eric, there's a, there's a, <clears throat> it's a fascinating question around algorithmic regulation. So I had some conversations with people in D.C. late last year about this idea that we're going to be able to create algorithmic regulation. So let's say the, the federal government says we want to reduce childhood obesity and they're going to pay for some kind of outcome. But obviously you need the money up front to pay for the outcome down the road, which means that a third party like a Goldman gets involved and says, <clears throat> well, we're going to give you, you know, we get a 10% discount on the outcome, we're going to bet in this thing, whatever. So Goldman issues the money, and there's an algorithmic regulation to end um, childhood obesity. Yeah. Which then says, well, now Merrill Lynch wants to offer a derivative on this, they're going to short that, and they're going to put Frito-Lay machines all around the schools. That's one probably asinine but kind of scary view of the world. And then the second is, um, let's say that that program, the after-school programs, reduced childhood obesity by 30%, and you said it was going to go down by 40%. So you don't get your money, but they reduced teen pregnancy by 50%. Something that was un unexpected. It was an amazing outcome, and it turns out that the social good of 50% reduction in teen pregnancy and 30% reduction in childhood obesity is amazing for society, but they don't get the money. So that model you just suggested is great but it has a challenge in that it can stifle the sort of unexpected upside you'd learn about. Maybe you see a tremendous amount of, you know, the literacy isn't great, they're not fully literate, but there's an amazing amount of um, people who don't go back to jail 
for example, and that turns out to be a social good. And I think the challenge that people, the 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 conversations I've had with nonprofits is they often say yes, but um, we might find something else, and that it feels like a cop out. But I kind of think they have a problem. Uh, they have a point too that there's it, it stifles the creativity and just doing good stuff. How do you reconcile that? Well, you got to compare. It's not, the question is compared to what? So first of all, I'm not advocating this as a matter of public policy. I think when the government starts issuing money in an algorithmic way, you are subject to significant gaming. And um, I think when you have situations where you're not quite sure what the social good you you want is primarily, but you're pretty sure you're going to get social good, those should be publicly those should be public infrastructure investments. They should be owned and operated by the government. Um, and if you want to, if you're not sure about that, just like look at what happened with healthcare.gov. You know, I rest my case. But that's there's a still a huge amount of philanthropy that's happening that's not you know there's not a regulation and not a matter of public policy but simply people who are trying to drive outcomes. So the question is, um, if you have nonprofits that are overly focused on one specific outcome, there are some downsides. It could be that you know like I said you tr you're working on literacy but you accidentally help people stop smoking. Now if there were a lot of foundations funding a lot of these causes, it'd be no problem. You just go to the not smoking foundation and you get the money from them instead. Um, but like Okay, so so that that but that is like but maybe there is no non-smoking foundation, and so you would have had a social good, but there's you simply can't get it funded. So that is a possible downside to this approach. But consider the downsides to the current approach, where the vast majority of philanthropic dollars are going to people who talk a good game but don't do anything. They're just being outright wasted. Like I mean, just you talk to people who actually work in philanthropy and nonprofits for for a living, who know the sector well, and and don't ask them publicly because they never admit this. But ask them privately. The, the most successful fundraisers you know are they the most successful at driving impact? And I'll be like, that asshole? Oh my god, no way. <laughs> right? Like everyone knows who we're talking about, but you don't you don't want to challenge so and so because a lot of very important foundations have been taken in by their con game and you don't want to be seen as criticizing them. So we wow. know in that business, just like I mean, this is true in VC too, I don't mean to be criticizing nonprofits. We got oh, a lot I was of just gonna go there. <laughs> Let's pick yeah, out well, everyone, yeah. Well, yeah, well, we all know it's true. amount of loss, right? So you're saying look how bad the cost was before. It's better now what it, but lean doesn't mean losing no money. So what right. like how do people right. think about the acceptable amount of loss in, in this context? Yeah, look so, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I yeah, Daniel, oh, I really want to make sure we get on to the stuff you were writing about recently because we're a little far far afield from from uh, startup metrics. Although I could talk to you guys about this all oh, day. But I think we're great. headed back to it. So so what I wrote about was burn rates and I and right. I think one of the things I noticed with people who are talking about lean analytics is they feel like Lean is meant to reduce waste, so that means I can have no waste or I'm failing. So is it appropriate to look for a no waste solution? Or like how do you think about the it's basically customer cost of customer acquisition is one example of waste, right? Like what's an acceptable waste? I mean people misunderstand what, what waste means. Like and this is an old people have been having this problem in lean long before lean startup. This is an old Toyota production system problem. When they first brought Toyota's production system to America, you know, we talked about, you know, everyone, I hope everybody listening knows about the original lean manufacturing. Kaizen, continuous improvement, stop the line, low inventory, just-in-time delivery. They set up factories with American managers, uh, and the Japanese executives would come visit, you know, they, they believe Genshi Genbutsu, right, go and see for yourself. So uh, Japanese executives were touring the American factories all the time. They would go to an American factory, they'd meet with the manager, and they would say, how many end-on cord poles, how many problems are you having in your factory? And the manager would be very proud, and they'd say, oh, we've got it down to zero. None. No problems. And like this is like, in Toyota, that would get you fired. So they have a saying, no problem is a big problem. If you think you have no waste, then you are kidding yourself. You're crazy, because we're human beings, and we're imperfect. There's no such thing as a perfect system. So uh, continuous improvement means always identifying sources of waste and trying to drive them down. But first of all, holding yourself to the standard of zero waste means you have to be unbelievably conservative. Only the most slow-moving, incredibly conservative, non-productive system could be considered to be zero waste. And also, waste is not bad per se. Like people think, oh, marketing spend is waste. But like, I, I don't, I don't see it that way. If that allows, like, for a business, we didn't, we talked about the two engines of growth, viral and sticky. We didn't talk about the paid engine of growth, which we can if anyone's interested. But in that business, um, you're using the fact that there are distribution channels that you can pay for to get the word out about your product. Now you want to do that as cheaply as possible to improve margins, but a world in which those channels exist is better than a world in which they don't exist because that would be a world in which no one ever found out about new products uh, except you know what what people in their popular click knew about. So so uh, yeah, I think people really misunderstand the role of waste. So Danielle, it, you, uh, I want to really quickly recap the stuff you were writing about, you know, just talking about how much burn is good burn. 
-hmm. And obviously there's this tension between burn and churn, right? Like if you have a recurring revenue business, then uh, your customers are worth something, their, their lifetime value, and how quickly you lose them times what they're worth tells you how much money you got. And there's this natural tension between the the net ads that you're the net ads, the speed with which you're filling up the bucket, how much the water in that bucket is worth, and how much money you're spending keeping the lights on. What I found fascinating about your article is a great article, but what I found fascinating about it was that um, the number of people that were willing to then share their experiences. It feels like, I mean, when Ben and I wrote the book, we started calling VCs and entrepreneurs because we'd found that in um, in our in running uh, an accelerator called Year One Labs, we didn't know what normal was, so we didn't tell we didn't know what to tell people. Like, is five percent churn good? Is ten percent good? Is one percent good? So we started asking, and it took a lot of like bribes and and not a small number of beers to get this information. It seems like there's almost been a sea change in transparency. The response to your article was amazing. Yeah, so um, I think it helped that I put out a burn rate that's like reasonably high for an early stage company. So I think it made a lot of other people look good. So hopefully that helps. Um, so you know, our company burns between 150 and 200 thousand dollars a month. Um, we do generate revenue. So I think a lot about the ratio of how much money you're making, how much money you're spending, and the burn rate is basically what we've decided is the acceptable waste at any given point and right now because we believe there's this huge opportunity we're chasing it really comes down to risk tolerance you know as Eric said if you have zero waste then you're the most possible conservative model I mean we could do that right we could say we're not gonna hire anybody new and we're just gonna go ahead and um, continue to grow our annual recurring revenue until it crosses over and we're gonna be profitable and and we're gonna make a bunch of trade-offs right so if we hire nobody new then probably a lot of new features don't get built probably a lot of new things don't get learned we can't fund as many experiments um, so I think what this does is it gives people a way of talking about risk tolerance um, and that's all it really is because at the end of the day, so we're venture backed so at the end of the day this money that investors are giving us is a bet that they're making you know we're one experiment in their portfolio of risk tolerance and they have you know some companies that are profitable some companies that are losing huge amounts of money far more than where we are you know we're somewhere in the middle or probably on the slightly good side because you've got revenue um, and, and so I think the important thing is to actually talk about it not as being embarrassed that you spend money, but as, well, what is that going to? So obviously the next que order question you have to ask is, well, what is this money being spent on? In our case, it's being spent on 95% of it is just engineering time. Um, and that comes down to we're building some pretty um, difficult technology. But, I mean, if it wasn't that, it could have been many other things. It could have been that we found a paid channel that works really well and we need to have experts who are executing against that because there's an arbitrage opportunity. There's lots of things it could be. Um, as far as transparency, I think Buffer really, to me, started the trend. And I think um, there have been people who shared in the past, but because, um, because digital companies are becoming more developed, there's more benchmarks that actually are useful because it's not all advertising model businesses anymore. Because um, you kind of always knew what advertising costed. So you kind of always knew that all these companies with no revenue model were going to basically get roughly the same return depending on the number of eyeballs. That was easy. You could just kind of stack rank them by how much attention they were getting on the internet. Uh, well, we it's were a mentioning, harder now. We were mentioning in the, in the preamble to this when we were getting ready for the call, uh, one of the case studies in Lean Analytics was um, uh, WP Engine. And they had this question where they were like, their founder was like, I'm losing a quarter of my customers a year. This sucks. And so he was trying really hard to fix that, right? Just over mm -hmm. and over, everything they could do. And then he sat down with Matt Mullenweg, and Mullenweg said, wait, that's 2% a month. That's awesome. Um, until you know what normal is, you that makes you do stupid things, right? I mean, not knowing what normal is makes you do really dumb things. And so in his case, it was like, okay, now I need to go optimize customer acquisition costs, or mm -hmm. I need to um, you know, fix the virality of my system. And so, Eric, I know a lot of people on the chat have been asking about uh, the paid engine of growth since that comes in, since we just talked about burn and we've got customer acquisition costs. Do you want to give us a quick recap of that? I, I don't do quick very well. I'll do my best. <laughs> uh, and, and listen, I, let me put a quick plug in for Alistair's book because uh, his book is the only book I've ever read that has a just absolutely tour of every kind of business you could possibly be in and just an actual honest to God examples of here's what normal looks like in that kind of business. And for people who are chasing some perceived benchmark, what they think their metrics are supposed to be, this is like a source of great sanity and uh, w well worth the price of admission. So you should definitely Thanks, check it out. Eric. Yeah, um, yeah. He he bought the beers for everybody so that you don't have to. Um, 
so, so take advantage of that seriously. Um, so yeah, so paid engine of growth, and what well, ties in well with what Danielle was just talking about, because uh, you know, again, we talked about hey, okay, sustainable growth means new customers come from the actions of past customers. So one way that that can happen is you take revenue from past customers and reinvest that in customer acquisition, and just like viral engine of growth has a viral coefficient that says how fast the engine turns. Uh, in the sticky engine of growth, net churn tells you what the uh, um, how fast the compounding interest is going to happen. Uh, for paid engine of growth, there's a simple uh, single number, which is just what is the marginal profit per customer, right? The lifetime value of a customer minus the cost to acquire that customer. When that number is positive, you're going to grow really fast, and if the number is negative, you're going to shrink really fast. And what's what's cool about the paid engine of growth is um, customer acquisition channels, and this is true, by the way, whether we're talking about AdWords or whether we're talking about retail storefronts. Uh, every kind of customer acquisition channel is fundamentally an auction where the price of customer acquisition gets bid up to whatever the average marginal profit per customer is for that category. Uh, so those of you who've been on AdWords for years know this extremely well, you know, but that, this is, though I talk to retail guys, they have the exact same problem. Anyone who sells through channel, doesn't matter if it's Walmart, uh, or you're buying storefronts in populated areas, like every channel gets bid up to that cost. And so the people who succeed in the paid engine of growth are people who have a differentiated ability to make more money per customer than the average for their business. That's why having a margin advantage is so killer uh, in winner-take-all businesses. And, and it's, by the way, I'm very bullish on what Danielle is doing. Thank you. But I'll tell a story that, that I don't know, so take it back to burn. I don't think I've told the story before, but uh, everyone remember Rest in Peace Good Times? That, that ring a bell for those of us who lived through the, the last financial crisis, 2008. Uh, Sequoia Capital made a very famous pitch deck where they, they summoned all their portfolio companies together and they gave them this presentation that was oh, like, the world yeah. is going to hell. Good <laughs> times are over. You need to cut costs like right now, yesterday. And it was like a huge signal. We're, we're basically like... It wasn't a pitch deck, but like, you know, Andreessen's tweet storm and Danielle's blog post. Like, I feel like we're, we're coming up on, on that equivalent moment for this current boom. And it just so happened that right when that was happening, I was starting to be known as the lean startup guy right about the same time. It was actually awesome extremely timing. good timing for me because all these people were calling me and be like, holy shit, my investors just told me I need to cut costs. You're the lean startup guy. Can you get me um, a good deal on my office furniture? Can you help me, like, you know, negotiate my rent down and other, like, cost-saving things? And, of course, at the time, I was like, no, 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 you don't understand. I want to tell you about the build, measure, learn, feedback loop. And you can imagine how well that went over. People were just like, no, I need to save money, like, right now. But my point at that time, which I think was right, and which those who listened to me, I think Benedict fended from, and, of course, many others didn't survive. I'm sure many of the people who listened to me also didn't survive, though, so take that for what it's worth. Um, my point was... If you are spending cost that's not helping you get through that learning feedback loop faster, then you want to cut those costs. Any fat, any waste in the system that's not helping you learn faster, what you really, at the core business assumption, stuff you should cut. But by the way, that's true in good times and bad times. Like never, ever spend money except the things that are going to help you get through that build, measure, learn feedback loop faster. Everything else is pure waste and you can get rid of it. So like the publicist you're hiring to plan for the big splashy launch in the Super Bowl next year, you know, that's waste you can cut right now. And you could have cut it yesterday. You didn't need Sequoia Capital's rest in peace, good time. So I, mean, I had a lot of these meetings and customers. Now, nobody asked me this question, but at the time, I was really worried someone would ask me the question, well, okay, that's true, but is it truly unlimited? I can spend as much money as I want as long as I get some learning from it. And, of course, that, that can't be right because learning, investing in learning has diminishing returns. So, like, you know, there's only so many engineers I can hire to actually productively work on these experiments. So how do I really know how to balance and it's taken me, it's, you know, it's been, gosh, how many years now? Six years since the last financial crisis. So I've been thinking about this all this time. I feel like I'm only now able really to answer the question, which goes back to that innovation accounting thing I was talking about. If you actually could do a net present value analysis of your business at every snapshot moment in time to say, here's what I've learned so far and how much it has affected the net present value of my business, then that also tells you how much each increment of learning is actually worth financially speaking and therefore what your burn rate should be. So you can afford to spend up to that net present value delta. And that's why as you learn more, as you accelerate your learning, and as you prove the learning is more valuable, you can afford to spend more money. And at that point, all VC is is securitizing that future net present value so that you can spend it today. And when you understand it that way, it really makes all these fundraising negotiations and conversations make a lot more sense. So, Awesome. Well, I think on that, Eric, we're right at 11 o'clock. And... Um, Awesome. We've kind of come full circle on accident through the engines of growth in this call and I've covered a bunch of metrics. So this recording I know is going to be online later, but 
Awesome. Cool. Well, Alistair, do you have anything else you want to add before we uh, sign off? Just that uh, I guess the one metric that matters is a cop-out. It's the one metric that matters to your business right now. And uh, <laughs> so we kind of sit on the fence there. The question is knowing what thing is most on fire about your business, and that takes the intellectual honesty that Eric referred to. Uh, it takes some of the transparency that you've seen. Uh, but ultimately, it is about um, how quickly can you find that the the numbers that show you if you're getting closer to that mythical unicorn of the product and the market and the go-to-market method and all that stuff. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, and this was a great conversation. I feel like I've got a lot of work to go do myself. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Daniel. Thanks, Daniel. Good to see you as always. You thank too. you. Take care. Go Giants. Okay. <laughs> thanks, Alistair, Danielle, and Eric. And thanks to everyone for joining us today. This wraps up our show. Please join us again at the next webcast, an introduction to Lean Impact on October 28th. In the meantime, visit leanstartup.co for more information on the Lean Startup Conference, which is coming up on December 8 to 12 in San Francisco. Bye, everyone. <laughs>